One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. How often do you think about roads or bridges? Do you know how your water gets to you or how sewers take away your waste? What about the network of power stations, pylons and wires that brings you your electricity? Do you think about them or how they got built? I'm guessing probably not. Or you don't think about any of these things until they break. Today, our guest wants us all to see the infrastructure around us. She argues that infrastructure is among humanity's most impressive and ingenious achievements. And it's not all suspension bridges and airports. She argues that medicines and even light switches all count as infrastructure. These things are more than simply the environment that we've built around us. They make up a vast network that connects and runs the modern world. And crucially, that network gives people agency. With infrastructure, humans can do seemingly superhuman things like extend the day for as long as they like or travel across the world in a matter of hours. Infrastructure, she argues, brings people together. These systems are so important in our lives. And one way of thinking about that is thinking about it as care. Right, that we need to care for these systems as a way of caring for each other. Our guest today is Deb Chachra. She's a professor of materials science at Olin College of Engineering in Massachusetts. Her new book is called How Infrastructure Works, and it tells the story of how infrastructure has shaped society in unexpected ways and how it needs to change in the future to meet the world's most pressing challenges. This is Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha. Today, Deb Chatra on the power and the promise of infrastructure. Deb Chatra, welcome to Babbage. Thanks, I'm so happy to be here. Let's start with some definitions. If people hear the word infrastructure, they're probably thinking of roads, bridges, buildings, and that's if they think of infrastructure at all. I mean, it's not one of these things that people go around thinking about much. But I think you're arguing that infrastructure is much, much, much more than all of that built environment around us. Light switches, postal systems, medical regulators, people who make your planes safe to fly. What is infrastructure in your terms? <laughs> oh, just an easy question to get started with. So infrastructure has, as you've noticed, many definitions that get used in lots of different ways. Infrastructure is kind of all the systems around us that we just take for granted as enabling the things we do. The non technological systems, it's things like the legal system or the monetary system. So all of those are sort of broadly defined as infrastructure, all of the scaffolds that we take for granted that enable the things that we're trying to do. However, despite the fact that you said that I think about infrastructure broadly, for our purposes, I really am focusing on networked infrastructure. So these technological systems that we think of kind of classic utilities, sort of water, electricity, transportation. 
telecommunications, things like natural gas or utility gas to our homes. And so that really is the focus of the book. But as you've pointed out, it's really hard to think and talk about those systems without thinking about that larger context. And all of the systems you've talked about, in terms of what they do for us, I mean, you describe it as these things meet some of our basic biological needs, but they also give us agency. Talk about that a little bit. What, What do you mean by that? I like to quote Amartya Sen, who's a Nobel Prize winning developmental economist. And he talks about how the main purpose of having wealth or income or money is to give us the freedom to live the kinds of lives that we wish to lead in the world. It gives us this agency. And I would argue that on a day-to-day basis, if you live in a place that has kind of full-stack infrastructure, it's not so much money that gives you the freedom to act in the world. It's the existence of these collective systems. So when I think about agency, I think about the ability, you know, even just something as simple as turning on the light when it's dark so that you can see inside or you can see after the sun's gone down and do what you want to do rather than being shaped by the world around you. It includes things like transportation, the ability to move around in the world. It includes everything that we do with electricity. Electricity is so versatile. That's why we often just call it power, that we use it to do many different things. And Every one of us in every household, we all use energy in different ways. So all of these are what I and Professor Sen would think about as agency. It's the ability to act in the world. And we are material beings and we're moving around the world and we're doing things in a physical world. These systems really rely on energy to act more than money. Money is the thing that enables energy, but we need energy to act in the world. And they involve matter, and the systems that we have built out are networks. A lot of the systems we've discussed so far are invisible to people. And it seems like your task is trying to make infrastructure as visible as possible, so that we are in awe of it in some respect, but also we take it seriously when there are problems with it or thinking about the future of it. There's a particular part of your book that I quite liked to write at the beginning where you come home from work and you're making dinner and you parallel yourself with a Hindu goddess. Can you talk to us about that story? Because I think it's a really good way of describing how little people think about things, but also how much is going on in the world, even for a basic task. Sure. The most boring quotidian part of my day is I do what many of us do. I come home from work, you know, I drop my bag, I turn on the lights, and then I start making dinner. So, you know, I go into the kitchen, I might put water on my stove to heat up, I might take food out of the fridge and cut it up, I will listen to, you know, the stereo, all of those sort of very boring, very everyday tasks. And what that really hides is that everything that's kind of inside the walls, inside my kitchen, is in fact connected to these much, much larger systems. So even though it seems like I'm just sort of standing by myself just doing these very things, I am in fact connected to the world via these incredible networks. And so the metaphor that I used is that I'm like multi-armed Durga, who's a Hindu goddess, and each of her many hands is holding a different tool in the world, And I can think of this as I have water and I have the sewage and the drain and I have the natural gas that comes to my stove and I have, of course, electricity and I have telecommunications and I have all of these globe-spanning powers that are at my fingertips. There's so much at my fingertips that I don't even think about them. So there's this sort of paradox that on one hand, all of these are very simple, boring systems and I'm just like a middle-aged woman standing in my apartment. And 
in another sense, I am this sort of multi-armed goddess with this globe-spanning power that I just take for granted. It's just part of what I use every day. And in some sense, we all have multiple arms that are invisible that you want us to see. Yes. <laughs> it's the existence of these networks that make it possible for us to collectively provide for our individual power or individual agency. I'm curious to know what bit of infrastructure you think would most amaze someone from, I don't know, the 1800s. What would send a Victorian child into a coma? <laughs> um, you know, I want to say video games, but I actually think the answer is things like, for a kid from 200 years ago, I would say transportation. If you've only ever seen trains, and then it's like, we're going to go on an Airbus 340. I think that would just make a kid from 200 years ago eyes fall out of their head, right? This enormous thing, it flies through the air. How is that possible? You go to a different place, you're there in hours, not days. I'm saying this because I actually still think that civil aviation is remarkable as a grown-up um, who lives in the 21st century. I was going to say, I think if people thought about it even today, it would make their eyes fall out of their head that there's a 200-ton metal object flying through the air. On a routine basis. Yeah. So these systems are genuinely remarkable that have become absolutely mundane in our lives, but it's actually the moment where we sort of see them again and transform them again to make them mundane in someone else's life, right? So that in 100 years from now, our kids are like, whatever, this is just the way we live our life. So tell me, when did you start to see this infrastructure, this invisible infrastructure in your own life? When was it that you thought to yourself, hang on, there's more than just me wandering around the world. I'm connected to all these different things. As a kid, I ended up being exposed to both very visible infrastructures and these invisible infrastructures. So my parents emigrated from India to Canada, and my father went to work for the provincial power utility. And near our house, a nuclear power plant had just come online that was, in fact, visible from the beach on Lake Ontario at the foot of our house. So on the one hand, I had this sort of large, charismatic piece of infrastructure that was almost part of my daily life. But the other piece of it is that because my parents had emigrated from India and the contrast between growing up in Canada when we would spend time in India when I was a kid, so it was some decades ago, you know, we had water for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. And it was potable, but not quite clean enough if you were a kid who grew up on Canadian water. And we had electricity, of course, but there were also pretty commonly brownouts in the afternoon, in the summertime, as there's more and more demand on the systems. So all of the systems that I had had were invisible to me in Canada became visible to me in a new way by virtue of spending some time in India as a child. That story you've just told spoke to me as well, because my parents were also immigrants to the UK and we would go to India back in the 90s, late 80s, to see family. And my abiding memory of that was how little electricity there was wherever I went. And so there would be electricity for a few hours a day, and then it wouldn't be there for the rest of the day. And it didn't seem to bother anyone particularly, but they didn't have refrigerators or anything. And my mum's dream was to bring them a refrigerator in one day. And I remember saying to people that, oh, no, we don't even think about lights and electricity in England. They're just on all the time. So for me, all of this became quite clear back then. You mentioned charismatic structures. You talked about a nuclear power station that you particularly sort of found fascinating and elegant. It's one of these things which, you know, as a casual reader, you might think, well, how can a nuclear power station be elegant? The first thing I'm going to say is that even before the sort of understanding them or thinking about them as technology, I think we really recognize them as collective or communal structures, that bridges and nuclear plants and train stations are things that we have built together for all of us. And I was like Joan Didion's description of the highways in Los Angeles as secular communion. But on the creative technology side, pretty much 
every one of these structures is designed to work in the environment in which it's embedded. And that means using the available resources, using the energy or the materials that are present. And so, for example, one of my favorite pieces of infrastructure is the Denorway Pump Storage Hydroelectric Power Station in North Wales, just adjacent or inside Snowdonia National Park, uses the specific features of the landscape, the fact that there are mountains and lakes, to store electricity in the position of the water. So if the water is in the top lake, it stores energy. You can let it fall through the generator to the bottom lake and produce energy, and then you can pump it back again. And it's very much embedded in what is present there. So it's a wonderful example of this specific engineering elegance, which is often not visible without a slightly deeper understanding of how the system works. But because most of these systems really make the most of what's present in the landscape, they're often really elegant and beautiful. Do you think that appreciating sort of the beauty of structures like the ones you described, or just the elegance of them, is an important part of seeing the infrastructure? Or is it just a nice add-on to have? Because I mean, <laughs> for people who aren't engineers, they're not going to see necessarily all the physics engineering that goes on underneath them. But they do see the beauty of these things and can appreciate them. So infrastructure is something of a paradox. So on the one hand, the nature of these systems is that when they are present and when they are reliable, we take them for granted and we never think about them. And that is actually a good thing, right? It means that they are sort of silently enabling the things that we want to do without us having to actually deal with the systems themselves. So one of the roles that these pieces of infrastructure play, like the Golden Gate Bridge, like beautiful train stations, is that they're a way of making our infrastructure visible to us that is not because they're failing. It means that we can sort of see, oh, right, like we have this bridge. Oh, we have this power station. So we can recognize the sort of beauty and the utility of these systems because the common way in which we notice these systems is when they fail, whether that's a glitch or a major power outage or in the wake of a natural disaster. Well, we'll come back to failure in just a moment. But something else that occurs to me is that there are lots of choices whenever those things are being constructed. There are lots of choices of where you build and who builds and who these bits of infrastructure serve. And the description you've given is kind of cooperative and it feels like everyone is getting access to these things. But who has infrastructure traditionally been designed to serve? And what does that tell us about the social politics of the past? Yeah, so... <laughs> I've been talking about the good side, but there's the other side. So these are two sides of the same coin. We think about infrastructure as the networks that bring resources to where we use them. They are definitionally also networks that take resources away from other places. And that will have an impact on the people and the place that they're being taken from. If you think about the big power stations in London, so Battersea, Bankside, we're burning coal and producing electricity and contributing in really not amazing ways to the air pollution in London. And of course, they've both been closed down, but London still has electricity, right? So it means that the work of generating electricity was moved out of the cities, but the benefits of that electricity were still available to the people who lived in the city. And in particular, if there were still coal generation, if you lived in London, you didn't have to deal with the air pollution, but somebody else had the air pollution, and also the coal was being extracted from somewhere with those consequences. So... Having said that, the people who build out the infrastructure are the people who have the resources and the ability to work together with this sort of collective investment. And that means they are the ones who are making the decisions about, oh, well, who's going to benefit from these systems? Where are they going to go? And who's going to be harmed? And so the history of infrastructural systems 
is just as much about those decisions about where do the harms go as it is about the who benefits because who is making the decisions and what are their motivations. And generally speaking, am I right to think that it's more well-off people, richer people who would be benefiting and the externalized harms are being pushed towards people who are less able to object to that sort of thing? So that's, of course, exactly, sadly, you know, correct. And it's sort of for two reasons. So one is because of the idea that you can essentially pay people to accept the harms, right? But then the other piece of it, of course, is that the people who are benefiting are seeing the world through their own eyes in terms of what the benefits and what the harms are. This one is really common across North America. For example, large hydroelectric power dams. The perception of the people who are building the dams was, oh, well, this is empty, useless land, right? No one is using this land. We're just going to take this unproductive, not worthwhile land and, you know, create a huge reservoir and use it to produce electricity. And this is a genuine benefit. But of course, that isn't true, right? There is no empty land. Those spaces were being used by indigenous peoples. So in that case, the people with the resources and the people who are making the decisions and the people for whom these systems were built to benefit didn't even understand the ways in which these resources were already being used or the harms that were being generated. It is very much the people who are building the systems, the people who have the resources to do that are making the decisions. And those decisions can range from indifferent to actively hostile, but certainly they're always going to be self-interested, right? They're always going to be for the benefit of the people using them. So then the question is, how do we think about who the systems are for? And what's really changed in the last half century or so is that our idea of whose voice counts or whose life matters has broadened immensely over the course of the last half century. Deb, you mentioned earlier about the fact that infrastructure is often only visible to people when it breaks, when it fails. So how does it fail? I mean, people will be able to understand that any material eventually degrades if it's not kept up and maintained and roads will fall apart, bridges will fall apart. And then we have many sad stories of bridges falling and killing people. And what are the sort of failure mechanisms and why are they important to think about? So, yeah, as you said, there's a sort of standard, you know, everything degrades, entropy happens, maintenance piece of it. There is actually, in the case of the types of infrastructure that we're talking about, these networked infrastructures, there's actually a much more serious issue that is just starting to manifest, which is that if we think about all of these systems as networks that move resources around the landscape that are built to be sort of stable and reliable, the thing that is changing now is that the stable, reliable landscape on which they're built is becoming much less stable and much less reliable. So as the impacts of global warming kick in, we're seeing much more variability and much more what we think of as extreme weather conditions. Even sort of well-designed systems are not functioning in the way they were intended to. So for example, Austin a few years ago had a boil water order on its water supply because there was so much rain, it was washing silt into the reservoir and it just overloaded the capacity of the water purification system to cope. And so that's the kind of example that when we have these systems that are embedded in the landscape, if the landscape is changing in unprecedented ways, these systems are inevitably going to be affected. And so even if we have well-cared-for, well-maintained systems, we can't count on them being reliable into the next 50 or 100 years because we can't take the stability of the weather or the climate or the landscape in which they're embedded for granted anymore. 
We'll be back with Deb in a moment. Before we continue with our conversation on how to make infrastructure fit for the 21st century, though, you'll have hopefully noticed by now that The Economist is launching a new podcast subscription, which will be starting in a couple of weeks. From October the 24th, if you want to continue enjoying this show, Babbage, as well as all of our other specialist shows, you'll need to be a subscriber. If you already subscribe to The Economist, we appreciate your support and you'll have full access as part of your subscription. If you're not yet a subscriber, you'll need to sign up to Economist Podcasts Plus. And if you do that right now, you can take advantage of our special half-price offer of around $2, £2 or €2 a month. For that, you'll get all of our regular shows. And if you're looking for new podcasts to enjoy, you won't be disappointed because we've got more on the way from the award-winning Economist podcast team. The new show I'm particularly excited about is called Boss Class, a series on management from our most popular columnist. If you're constantly striving to be a better manager, Boss Class is for you. It's packed with practical advice from people who run things and the people who've studied those people. And just like the weekly Bartleby column that inspired it, you can bet it will be relatable and funny. That's coming up later this month for our subscribers. Some of you have been asking exactly how the technology for the subscription podcast will work. Well, Economist Podcast Plus will be available on whatever podcast app you're using right now, as well as our own Economist app. To sign up for that special offer, click on the link in the show notes. If you're too busy to do that right now, it's easy to find the link later. Just Google Economist Podcasts. Coming up, how to engineer infrastructure for a warming world. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today on Babbage, we're talking to engineer and author Deb Chachra about the infrastructure that shapes our world. So far, we've re-examined our relationships with infrastructure networks. But what does the future of these systems look like, especially in a warming world? Let's rejoin my conversation with Deb. It's hard to talk about the future of infrastructure without talking about the environmental changes that are going on. Everything from roads to power stations to water systems, the way the cities are built, is going to be impacted by the fact that the world is warming up. 
And in your book, you spend a long time thinking about this and looking at sort of very constructive strategies on how to build that future. And I think I've never seen such a positive and constructive way of thinking about it. A lot of people talk about how in the future, we're going to have to fly less. We're going to have to use less energy. We're going to have to account for the fact that many parts of the developing world now want to use more energy. And so the rest of us in the West are going to have to cut back. And you don't buy that argument in terms of thinking about the future. And I wonder if you could just outline it for me. What is it about the future that you see as the sort of challenge that we have to address when it comes to building the next versions of all our infrastructure? So the difference between living in the global north or in the developed country and living in a country that's a currently developing country is not even so much a question of wealth. It's really a question of energy. How much energy do you use in your daily life? Much of which is used through these collective systems. So if you look at the amount of energy that is arriving on the planet in the form of solar radiation... If everybody on the planet used energy at the rate of people in the UK or North Americans, then it turns out that that's only a tiny fraction of this energy that's arriving on the planet. So throughout all human history, we've sort of thought, well, we have an infinite amount of stuff, right? The planet is really huge. We can just take what we want and dump it somewhere else and it'll be fine. But we're hitting the limit of that, right? Whether it's carbon dioxide in the air or whether it's microplastics in the ocean, we're understanding that we live on a finite planet when it comes to mass. What we have just started to wrap our brain around is that we actually have more energy than we can ever use. And what's changed in the last 30 or so years is that we have now mostly developed the technologies that we can use to access that energy, right? To have energy without going through combustion, without going through sort of matter in the form of oil and carbon dioxide and those atoms, that we can just use the energy. And we're just starting to think through the consequences of a world where matter is limited and energy is unlimited. Deb, just on that point, what do you mean by that, where we can use the energy? Do you mean solar cells and wind power and that, that yeah, kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. So basically, up until now, pretty much the way that we've gotten energy is by setting things on fire, which sounds incredibly primitive. And no matter how advanced these technologies are, it kind of is. And we haven't answered every question, but to a reasonable enough scale, we have developed technologies including, as you say, solar, including hydroelectricity, geothermal, wind power, are developed to the point where we can see how they can actually meet our large-scale energy needs. In the same way as access to fossil fuels made things that we could never do before possible, things that just required huge amounts of energy, like flying, if we have access to more energy that doesn't produce carbon dioxide, that doesn't extract resources from someplace else, what does that make possible? And the kinds of things that we don't do, for example, generally, we don't desalinate drinking water because it costs too much money, which really means it takes too much energy to do. But it's easy to imagine a world where if all of our energy was coming from sources like solar, ensuring that everybody in a city that was on the ocean had access to household drinking water through a desalination plant suddenly becomes possible in a way it wasn't before. I said way back when you talked about agency that energy is the way that we have agency in the world. Energy, more than wealth, is what enables us to live the kinds of lives that we have reason to value. Broadly, we want more agency for humanity, not less. Not less for ourselves, certainly not less for the people who have not had that kind of agency in their lives to begin with. So there's a real shift that has to happen here to really address the question of how do we use energy to meet everyone's needs and provide them with that agency, but then how do we reuse those atoms? And to bring those both in line with the actual physical reality of our planet as having 
an ongoing supply of energy, but a limited set of matter. So what we're really working on now is the social and the cultural side of that, of understanding that the shift is happening, understanding that it's our collective systems, and figuring out ways to move forward with it. So I find that whole argument so optimistic and constructive that I think it's really important to underline some of the points there, which is that people around the world can have access to the infrastructure and the agency and all the good things we've talked about if we were just to think about how to rebuild it in a way that's environmentally sustainable. And that includes all the technologies you've talked about. It's not about tit for tat, you know, I have to reduce my energy consumption so that you can also develop. Actually, we need to be smarter than that. So everyone is obsessed in the West about their carbon footprint and how much carbon you're using every day. But actually, it kind of hides the fact that individual action on things like climate change are perhaps not as important as political, social, collective action when it comes to sort of making a big difference to some of these big environmental challenges. Yeah, so we've been taught to think about this as an individual problem, right? It's like, how do I change my life to use less carbon? Yeah, there are carbon calculators everywhere. That's right, yeah. right? So, so there's two sides to this. Like one is, man, this feels really hard. I could do this, but it would be an enormous cost of time, often of money, certainly of agency, right? It means doing it this way instead of that way. And so it feels incredibly difficult to do. And also then it feels really kind of corrosive. It's really pernicious because it's like, well, why aren't you doing more? We can kind of point our fingers at each other and say, well, like, why are you flying and not taking the trade? Or like, why don't you take public transit to work? And it's like, because I can drive to work in 25 minutes and it will take me two hours to take public transit. And that really highlights the fact that most of the energy we use, we either do not use as individuals, we use it through collective systems like electricity, or the way in which we use that energy is shaped by the existence of these infrastructural systems. So most people who drive to work drive because it is easier, cheaper, more convenient to drive. All of those things are true because we have built out roads or built out gas stations and we have not chosen to build out public transit, right? And in lots of places like New York and like London, you absolutely do not drive because it is far more convenient to take public transit than it is to try to mess around with having a car. And so it's easy to overlook the ways in which our individual decisions are almost entirely shaped by these collective infrastructural systems. So getting to that point makes us realize that, oh, this is why it's so hard to change our lives as individuals, because we didn't get here as individuals. We're not acting as individuals, right? We're acting as individuals within these collective systems. And so recognizing that there's no such thing as an individual carbon footprint. There's just our collective energy usage and our slice of that collective energy usage. And it really opens the door to seeing it as, no, it's really about collective change. And having said that, I am by no means advocating, like, just live your life the way you want. Like, it's the societal thing. It's rather recognizing the fact that we can act at an individual level and we can act at a social, larger scale level. But I guess the message from that is that if we want to change the systems of energy or transportation, it is at the level of those systems. You know, it's the energy companies that have to start generating electricity using renewable sources and using hydropower or nuclear power or whatever else. In other words, they have to stop burning fossil fuels. And so it is a political and social cause, really, that you should be fighting. And I suppose the question of the carbon footprint and the reason I asked about this earlier was the idea of the carbon footprint was created 
by an oil company to sort of try and distract the responsibility from those oil companies to sort of do better and distract it onto the individual to make them feel guilty. And instead, it's now become this badge of honour of my carbon footprint is lower than yours, when in fact, (laughs) we should actually be looking at the systems level, really. There is a thing that is true for oil companies and is not true for the rest of us. And what is hiding in the carbon footprint is that it presupposes that your carbon footprint and your energy footprint are the same. That the only way that you can use energy is by producing carbon, and the only way you can reduce carbon is by reducing your energy consumption. And we all know that energy is how we have agency, so that means reducing your agency. So that does not sound very fun. That relationship is true if you're an oil company, right? That energy equals carbon. That relationship is not true as we increasingly bring renewable energy sources online. Then we can decouple our energy footprint and our energy usage from our carbon footprint, whether that's an individual or as a society. So that is the thing that has never been true before in human history and has really just changed in the last kind of 20 to 30 years. That implicit connection between energy and carbon dioxide is no longer true. So use as much energy as you want, just don't burn anything. That's, that's the message. Exactly. Yeah. You asked the question in the book about what it might look like if everyone had the energy, the transportation, the communication needs easily met in the way that many people in the West have. What kind of infrastructure do you need to build? And how different is it from what we have already? What is that vision of yours? So the first thing I want to say is, one, I think predicting the future is a mug's game. That's all we do on podcasts, I'm afraid. We predict the future. <laughs> we force you to predict the future. But the other piece of it, of course, is that there is no one future, right? There are many futures. And I mean, this is broadly true. And I think this is especially true in the case of infrastructure, because it is embedded in both the culture that it's for, but also the specific landscape, right? The specific place in which it is. So there's no kind of one size fits all solution. But there are a couple of key ideas here. The first thing that changes when we move to renewable energy is that energy is now distributed and decentralized in a way that it hasn't been. So rather than being concentrated in a few places in the world, it's like whatever's outside your window, there's sun, there's wind. If you live near running water, there's hydroelectricity, there's geothermal, right? So that access to energy and therefore the access to agency becomes decentralized and distributed. That's the first kind of enabling technology in terms of building an infrastructure globally. The second piece of it, of course, is that it took us 150 or 200 years to build out the systems that we currently have. And there is an enormous amount of stuff. Every car on the road, every gas-fired stove, every industrial process have all been built out using these systems. There is a sort of massive idea of if we're going to switch to decarbonization, all of that stuff is going to need new stuff. And so there's implications of this. If we just junk everything we have and replace it, it's, you know, it's absolutely easy to see that that would be disastrous, right? Like imagine taking every car off the road that runs on gas and replacing it with an electric car without doing anything else, right? Just having ginormous junkyards of cars. So that really highlights the fact that we have to start closing these materials loops, right? There's a beating swords into plowshares thing that needs to happen in terms of taking all the materials we have and then reusing them to make new materials. Better life cycles, basically. That's right. And really sort of closing the loop on those materials to make this transformation. The other piece of it is that this is a golden opportunity to think about, well, what do we really want 
in these systems? What are the ways in which they work well or don't work well for us? How can we do them differently? And so that gets into ideas not just of sustainability, but also in ideas of resilience, which is what kind of systems do we want in a world where the climate is increasingly variable? It brings up questions of equity. It's like, well, we know now that we made a bunch of not amazing decisions about what we're going to do with these systems, where we put them, who benefited, who was harmed, and we can make different decisions if we're going to transform them. And so if you ask me what kind of my vision for the future is like, it's taking the opportunity to build systems that work better, that work more sustainably, that are more resilient, that are more equitable, and to do it all over the world, not just in the places that have historically had access to these systems. That sounds like quite an exciting challenge. And it sounds like a doable challenge too, given the technologies that we already have. I mean, there's going to be some technologies that need to be developed, better batteries, for example, more serious recycling and things. But these don't seem like impossible moonshot challenges. They are moonshot challenges on the scale. They are not moonshot challenges on the, oh my God, we have to develop and it's impossible to imagine developing these technologies. You know, we don't have to violate the law of conservation of energy. Well, so that's probably right? good, then, in that case. You know, we do have to change how everyone on the planet thinks about these systems. We have to change lots about our society and our culture. But that's actually a lot easier to do than to violate the law of conservation of energy. So it is, of course, by no means easy. It's just not impossible. Making this transition is the work of our time. I'm an engineering professor and I teach undergraduate engineering students. They're 18 years old. They're looking to become technologists and looking at the future. And, you know, the next hundred or so years are going to be the moment where we transition our society from one that is built on extraction, that is built on combustion, to one that has the potential to have, you know, the kind of agency that we just take for granted available to everyone in a way that would be unprecedented. It's hard to explain what our current lives are like to people who lived 200 years ago. It may be similarly challenging to explain what the world looks like in 200 years, but there is at least the potential for this transformation to happen. There is the potential to build out collective systems that serve everyone. But it really does mean that we need to figure out how we're going to do it, not in the what are the technology sense, but in the how are we going to do it in the social sense and in the collective sense. Are you optimistic? I am optimistic about the technological side. My optimism about the human side varies by the day and what's on the front page of a newspaper. But broadly, I am. I do not think that history is destined to repeat itself. I do think that, and maybe it's because I'm an educator, I think that the thing that people do incredibly well every day of their lives is learn new things. And I think that we have the potential to learn how to do this together and to learn how to do it at all scales and in all places. Deb Chatra, your book's really optimistic and outlines the challenges we face in a way I've never seen before. Thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. That's all from us. Thanks for listening to Babbage. Don't forget, there's just a couple of weeks to sign up to our new Economist Podcast Plus subscription for half price. You need Economist Podcast Plus to keep enjoying our specialist weekly shows like this one, or Drum Tower on China, or Checks and Balance on America, as well as our exciting new series. Having your support will help us to continue making the best possible podcasts. And it means that we can continue to tell you the most exciting stories in science and technology. If you already have a subscription to The Economist, don't worry, you'll have full access to all of our podcasts. 
Search for Economist Podcast to find out more and to get our special introductory half-price deal. Babbage is produced by Kanal Patel and Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by James Stickland. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.